This morning's reading comes to us from Exodus 1, 8 through 22 in the New Contemporary English Translation. Many years later, a new king came to power. He did not know what Joseph had done for Egypt, and he told the Egyptians, there are too many of those Israelites in our country, and they're becoming more powerful than we are. If we don't outsmart them, their families will grow, keep growing larger. And if our country goes to war, they could easily fight on the side of our enemies and escape from Egypt. The Egyptians put slave bosses in charge of the people of Israel and tried to wear them down with hard work. Those bosses forced them to build the cities of Pithom and Ramses, where the king could store his supplies. But even though the Israelites were mistreated, their families grew larger and they took over more land. Because of this, the Egyptians hated them worse than before and made them work so hard that their lives were miserable. The Egyptians were cruel to the people of Israel and forced them to, to make bricks and mix mortar and to work in the fields. Finally, the king called in Shifra and Pua, the two women who helped the Hebrew mothers when they gave birth. He told them, if a Hebrew woman gives birth to a girl, let the child live. If the baby is a boy, kill him. But the two women were faithful to God and did not kill the boys, even though the king had told them to. The king called them in again and asked, why are you letting those baby boys live? They answered, Hebrew women have their babies much quicker than Egyptian women. By the time we arrive, their babies were, are already born. God was good to the two women because they truly respected him, and he blessed them with children of their own. The Hebrews kept increasing until finally the king gave a command to everyone in the nation. As soon as a Hebrew boy is born, throw him into the Nile River, but you can let the girls live. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, this, this text is interesting, A, because I've never preached on it, but also because I, I think that we, we, don't always, uh, we don't always see and think about um, some of these texts that uh, there's, there's some rich beauty and truth to us as some faces of faith that sometimes I think we forget about, of people who stood up and were courageous. Last week, uh, while I was gone, uh, Pastor Melinda just hit it out of the metaphorical ballpark, that's his as sporty of a metaphor as you're going to get, illustration you're going to get from me with her sermon. I, I thought she just really killed it uh, in a good way. That she highlights these five women in <clears throat> the, who basically nub the patriarchal system and inherit this great benefit and equality that makes a sort of question, what is the system that was even set up anyways, and was it ever even God's intention, perhaps? She highlighted these five women, Bahal, Hagla, Noah, Mil Milka, and Tersah, as women who are courageous women of our faith. Women who sometimes names that we don't always see or know. And today, we're going to look at two other women. As we saw, Shifra and Pua. Their names are beautiful, is Shifra, and Pua means to be fair. Interesting that their prophetic naming, I don't know if these names were given to them later. Sometimes in Hebrew scripture, they would rename someone after, uh, so they're the prophetic or courageous acts they did. Other times, parents would give them this name with the hope that they would live up to it. Who knows if their names changed or were uh, always that at times, but they surely live up to their names in the story today. I think it's interesting the way this story begins, and I think it's by no accident. Verse 8 says what? Many years later, a new king came to power, and he did not know what Jesus, Joseph had done for Egypt. What a weird way to start the story. Why would you start it that way? Well, it's because this pharaoh, this new king who comes to power, has no idea what Joseph had done before. Joseph, who is a Hebrew Jew... Okay? This is the first time, this is the first time in the Hebrew Bible that we ever see the Jewish people referred to as Hebrews or as a group of people in this story right here. And they are being villainized in this moment. 
this Pharaoh who comes to power, he doesn't realize that Joseph, who was a Hebrew Jew, he owes his life to. Many of us know the story of Joseph, right? Joseph is, slow, uh, is sold into slavery by his siblings, then he's imprisoned, then he gains favor with the Pharaoh, and the Pharaoh immediate, eventually, over a long span of time, puts him as second in command over all of Egypt. So he's the second most powerful person in all of Egypt, and guess what? He's not Egyptian, he's Hebrew, and it's Joseph who foresees that a famine is coming to the land of Egypt. And it is Joseph that then says, we need to store up food because a famine is coming when there will be not such a rainy day, when all of a sudden we're going to need food because there will be no rain. And so food is saved, and when the famine comes, all of Egypt is spared because of Joseph's act, and as well as many of the Jews and the Hebrews, including Joseph's family, are saved. Literally, Egypt is saved from despair because of another because of a different person than an Egyptian, because of a Hebrew. And so the story begins by wanting to remind us that this new Pharaoh comes to power and he doesn't realize that he actually owes his nation's existence to someone who didn't fit the mold, who didn't look like him, who didn't talk like him, who didn't worship the same gods as him, who didn't have the same heritage as him. He owes his life to the Jews, to the Hebrew people. Yet in this moment... Look what verse 9 says that the king actually thinks about the Jews. He says, he told, them, he told the Egyptians, there are just too many of those Israelites in our country. I don't know, that kind of sounds familiar. And they are becoming more powerful than we are, even more familiar. Verse 10, if we don't outsmart them, then their families will keep growing larger and our country will go to war eventually and they could easily fight on the side of our enemies and escape from Egypt. He goes on to basically tell them that those who are the slave bosses over the Israelites who they were oppressing, which is why, obviously, if they went to war, the Hebrews would probably not side with the Egyptians. They would side with their enemies because they were being enslaved, even though it was their people that saved the lives of the Egyptians years later. He goes on to say that he wants to double up the work on their shoulders, make life even harder for them. Perhaps, maybe even, they'll die as they do the work. Instead of this king realizing and knowing his own history and heritage and the story and the, the debt, quite frankly, that perhaps he, he owes to Joseph and to the Hebrew people, instead of viewing the Hebrew people as equal as they had once been as living in the land, instead he wants all the power for himself. He wants to build his kingdom on the backs of the Hebrew people. He's afraid that he's going to lose power, wealth, land, social and political influence. And so, worse yet, Maybe even they might rise up and become more powerful and kill him and those in the country. So what does he decide to do? He decides to oppress them all the greater so to hold up the systemic racism and oppression that exists in the society and world at the time. I can't help but hear this story and think about the modern equivalent that we exist today. I said it sounds familiar, right? It sounds familiar. I can't help but think about the power dynamics that have existed in the U.S., in the 17th and 18th century, we enslaved Africans, right? We, we brought them over to the Americas and we forced them to build and sustain and uphold systems and buildings and businesses that would literally only strengthen their oppression. The more that they built the White House, the more that they built up white businesses, the more that they worked in the fields and the courthouses and the state houses was the more that they were building up the strength of their oppressors, making it all the more difficult for them ever to get outside of the thumb of their oppressor. And this is the exact tactic that Pharaoh uses with the Hebrews, just to make sure 
just to make sure that they never get stronger than us, we're going to use them to build up the system that holds them down. We're going to make sure they know their place. Interesting in this text, the two cities that they were called to build up were Pithom and Ramses. And if you look at these two cities in history, you find out that these two cities were the storehouse cities in Egypt. It's where all the grain was stored because it was more of an essential location where people could bring grain from all over Egypt to those central locations and all store all the food so that if a famine ever hit or if war ever broke out, they had all the resources that they needed. Those are the cities that they were called to build up. Happened to be the same cities that Joseph had built and established to save them many years later. And now is being used as their very tools of oppression to cause them to be powerless. I can't help but hear this story today and think about abolitionists like Sojourner Truth or Martin Robinson DeLay who, who both worked to recruit soldiers in the Civil War and were told if you can get blacks to work in the war and to serve in the war, when they come back from serving in the war, they'll be free. This was a promise that was often even given in the North and, and, and slaves who were recently freed would, would leave the South and migrate to the North with the promise that if they served long enough, they could be free. Unfortunately, in many cases, this did not happen. In some cases it did, but unfortunately, on the backs of black and brown lives and bodies, the system was just greater propped up What's even more jarring to me to think about with this story is the idea that there's this parallel, right? Pharaoh has this fear in this story, does he not? That the, that the people whom they've oppressed might rise up and fight against them. In many ways, we see images of that would happen what existed within the Civil War. There was this fear that was rising up that those who had been oppressed might go fight with the North and they would be stronger and the South would fall. There is this tension, this power, this idea that, that if I loosen you up from my grip, you'll have the power I will. And what will you do to me when you have the power after my power was used to oppress you? This is exact similar dynamic that we see playing out here in the story this morning. We know this story is not just a story that exists within the U.S., but in all of the Americas. It exists in the Holocaust, as Hitler would often say things like, the Jewish people are like rats, he would say. They have no home. They just infest everyone's homes. And they must be annihilated. What a terrible view to think of the Jewish people. But still, that is the same view that it appears Pharaoh had towards them. Leading them towards total annihilation. It's heartbreaking to hear the stories this week, uh, just a few weeks ago, actually, I, I came across a news article that just recently came to the news about the indigenous children and adults that were found at a large indigenous residential school in Canada where 200 children's bodies, some as young as three years old, were found buried on the, on the site of this indigenous school. And we look and we realize that that's not just a Canadian history, but that's American history as well. That children, like we see in our story here today, were, were rounded up and basically told to assimilate and told if you don't speak the English language and if we hear you speak your native tongue, we'll beat you. And in many cases, it appears, beat him unto death. 
separated and taken away from their families to try to assimilate them into American culture and to change and make them lose their Native American Indian culture that was here in the Americas. It is believed that over 150,000 First Nations children were killed in the 19th century until the 1970s and were forced, even into the 1970s, to attend Christian schools as part of a program to assimilate them into Christian society, to make them what they wanted them to be. I see in this story that, that, that's been released in the news today that's a common story that's often hidden and not talked about and forgotten. I see the same parallels in our story today. To take a generation and to annihilate them. To either take a generation and change them and disconnect them and make them their own. What's fascinating about how they did it here in the story of Joseph is this. They were told to kill the boys, not the girls, right? Because it was through the boys that the, line, the lineage line would be passed down. But the girls, if they didn't have enough men to marry, who would they be forced to marry to have children? The Egyptian people. Whose line would be furthered? The Egyptian people. But what I don't think that they realized as they did this was that the more boys that they killed and then they married off the Hebrew girls to the Egyptian men who would then bear Egyptian children, they would eventually go out of business because they would have no more children to bear to use as slaves for a whole generation. What they don't realize is that the systemic racism is a system that they're lifting up to oppress another actually oppresses and hurts them as well. And what they think is their plan for success. Oh, the parallels that I see in the story that we read here today and the parallels we see in our society that exist to cause oppression to other people. So, what does the king finally decide to do? In this story, right, he, he calls these two women... Shifra and Pua. And he tells them that when the children are born, to kill them and to tell those who just gave birth that it was a stillbirth. What I love about this story as these two women are highlighted who go and don't do what Pharaoh tells them to do is that this story, it doesn't do, make any attempt to tell us the name of the king at the time. This makes no attempt to tell us the name of the Pharaoh, but it makes every attempt to tell us the name of these two women, Shipra and Pua, who have absolutely no connection to men in this story, which is the most common thread for when we hear references to women in the scriptures. It's when they're connected to other men. Not all the time, but a most common connection. And in this moment, they're not connected to any men. They're just these independent women who are brave and courageous and choose to be our very first example in scripture of civil disobedience. When the government tells you to do something, when the leaders and the laws and the land that you live on tell you to believe something about another group of people or tell you to treat another group of people in a certain way and you choose to do the opposite. These women, Shifra and Pua, are the first examples of civil disobedience. But I can't help but stop and, and pause and ask the same questions you do, Renee, right? Like, I, they, they disobey, they, they choose not to do this. Pharaoh finds out eventually in our text, we find out. So was it even worth it? I mean, do they save every child? Probably not. We, we don't even really know. It seems unlikely that, that only two midwives were there for all the Hebrew women. Remember, there isn't birth control. It seems maybe possible that Shipra and Pua are just the two women that we're told about that rise up and choose not 
to do what Pharaoh told them to do. Perhaps there were other midwives who were called that chose to do what Pharaoh told them to do and chose to uphold the system of oppression. But perhaps it was these two women, perhaps, who chose to resist the system and not take the instruction of the Pharaoh. Do they go on a crusade to change the hearts and minds of all the Egyptians in town about how the Hebrews think? No, that's not what they choose to do here. Do they go and they try to convince the Egyptian Pharaoh to change his mind about the Hebrew people, not view them as threats? No, that's not what they do there. And guess what? There's a time and a place for all of those things. There's a time and a place for protesting, for convincing and conversation. But in this moment, Shipper and Pua, they do something really beautiful. They just choose to be faithful with what they have and what they can in the ways that they can. Sometimes when you look at systems that just seem so overwhelming and you, you hear about the oppression that happens in our world and the mistreatment of other people, you think, it's too big, there's nothing for me to do, what can I do? And we just walk away. Or we think there's nothing I could do to ever move or change a system or hearts or minds, it's just too much work, and we just kind of cop out or opt out. But I think that the beautiful picture here of Shifra and Pua remind us that, that although they couldn't change all the hearts of the Egyptians, although they couldn't save every child who would be coming into the world or into their care, they could save a few. They could save a few. They could do something to make a difference. The story of uh, Daryl Davis in, his, in a documentary called Accidental Curiosity. Daryl Davis is a well-known jazz and blues player. And while he was playing one night at a bar, there was a white man that came up to him and said, I, I'm really impressed. I've never heard a black man play such incredible rock and roll music. And the man kind of looked at him and said, well, you know that, that, that like blues and jazz music, like rock and roll, like we inspired that. This came first. We inspired and fed into rock and roll. No, I didn't know that. I had no idea. He's like, yeah, so it shouldn't be so, so impressive that I can play rock and roll music. He said, well, you want to grab a drink? So they sat down, and they began to have a drink, and they began to talk. And as their conversation persisted, this man said, you know, I've never sat down and had a drink in a conversation with a black man in all my life. Daryl looked back at him and responded and, and said, really, why? He said, I honestly just don't know. He said, but I'm a member of the KKK. And I tell you what, you've changed my views about black people. <laughs> what? Daryl Davis goes on to tell in this documentary that that conversation for him opened his eyes to the great divide that existed and the work that needed to be done. If you watch in this documentary, he depicts that he decided from that point on that he was going to make attempts to have conversations with members of the KKK over and over again. Now, this isn't work that, that, uh, that all people of color are called to or feel called to. Quite frankly, it's not, all the, work of it's not the work of people of color to, to educate and inform non-people of color about black is issues in history. But for this moment, this is what Daryl felt called to. Daryl goes on to tell us that over the span of several years, he had several conversations with KKK members where he would just sit down, he would initiate it by saying, listen, you say you hate me, but how can you say you hate me if you've never even talked to me? Give me like a 10-minute conversation. And if at the end of it you still hate me, then fine. At least, you have, at least you made your best attempt and you can say you met someone and talked with someone like me. And over the span of these years, he converted over 200 people out of the KKK and he's got a whole closet full of hoods that were handed over to him that remind him every day when he sees them that he can't change the whole world, he can't up, up change all the systemic racism, systems and disagreements and, and, and prejudices that people have towards him and others, 
But one at a time, as he encounters people of color, as he continued to play at this bar in the South and members of the KKK would be brought in and bring their friends in to meet Daryl, he could make a change one at a time. Sometimes this civil disobedience doesn't look like a protest or a march or calling out those in power to be a change or telling people the truth exactly to their face. Sometimes it does. But sometimes it means lying, like Shepard Pua did, to protect another. Sometimes it means just being faithful to the, with the few and in the few ways you can. But sometimes I think, sometimes I think that being those who are called to live into the example of Shipra and Pua, it means living with a spirit of civil disobedience that doesn't always look how we understand civil disobedience. Sometimes it means to choosing to have a conversation with someone that you don't understand and doesn't understand you in a deep attempt to try to understand one another. Sometimes civil disobedience is like a modern Schiffer and Pua who choose to actively work to see that black lives and queer lives and Asian lives and indigenous lives matter. Sometimes it looks like reading uh, an assigned book or showing your kids a documentary at home as schools like Texas and Iowa outlaw critical race theory in their schools as illegal and not something that should be taught, and instead you choose to educate the children in your homes and your circles. Sometimes that's what civil disobedience looks like. Sometimes civil disobedience looks not like we had been taught or imagined or believed. Sometimes civil disobedience looks like uncovering, acknowledging, and apologizing for the realities that we see of how we've treated indigenous people over our span of time. I went to visit my grandma after we got, Austin and I got back from Arizona. And she asked me, what did you think about the time when you were in Arizona? And I said, you know, all of the, just the open, barren, desert-type environment, I just couldn't help but stop and think about the Native American people. We have filled this land with homes and buildings, and sometimes I don't even think about the fact that right here on the, the, the land that we stand on was taken and stripped from indigenous people. But when I was there in Texas, it, it beca- I mean, in, in Arizona, it came back to my mind so clearly. And my grandma said, oh, I've been to Arizona many times, and I've never thought about it like that. I never thought about folks. And I thought, you know, this is a moment when we can uncover. And sometimes civil disobedience looks like uncovering false narratives that have been told to us about our land or how we received it. Sometimes civil disobedience looks like marching down the streets of downtown Peoria, which I had the privilege of doing this last week with uh, the Schaffners. Marching down the streets of Peoria at 2 p.m. as people looked outside of the courthouse with sex workers and porn stars and survivors of rape and abuse chanting at the top of their lungs, our clothes are not consent. And then afterwards, sitting by the river at the feet of men and women as they shared stories about how harm has been done to their bodies and how their body, what they have done in their bodies and what has been done to their bodies has been criminalized and they have been looked over and hated and discriminated against. Sometimes civil disobedience is showing up with a white collar and them going, wait, you're the people that have condemned me my whole life. And to feel loved and seen, sometimes civil disobedience is choosing to not stay quiet or be agreeable when the coworker or the family member or the friend begins to, to lobby racist or homophobic or misogynistic comments. Sometimes civil disobedience does not look how we imagined. But today I believe that Shipra and Pua remind us that although we can't change it all, we can change some within the circles we, like, we live and we exist in. You know what I love about this story is actually the, the end of it, where it says in verse 20, verse 21, it says that the Hebrews, they kept increasing. So 
all these babies kept getting born. They kept increasing until finally the king gave a command to everyone in the nation, as soon as the Hebrew boy is born, throw him into the Nile River. But you, you let the girls live. They couldn't spare every child, but they made a way to spare at least one that I know of for sure by the name of Moses. They made the way for Moses to be born into this world. And that same Moses who would then later be laid in the Nile and would be picked out and raised up by someone in the system who didn't even know that they would be raising the one who would eventually rise up and deliver all of the Hebrew people. Shipper and Pua couldn't change everything. They couldn't save all the children. But they did faithful work enough to save the one who would come and save all of them. Sometimes we don't always see the fruit of our labor, the hard work that we've done. Sometimes we don't always see the ways in which God is using us or God is working for the future or in the future in our faithful presence in the present. I don't think Shipra and Pua knew that by choosing to disobey the empire and its act of civil disobedience that it would preserve and save their people in the long run. But they were faithful. And that verse ends, verse 20 through 21, it says, and the Hebrews kept increasing. The Hebrews kept increasing. As we observe Pride Month this month, uh, we've draped the communion table with uh, a rainbow flag as a reminder that uh, this is often a table that folks who are LGBTQ were told, you're not included, you're not welcome. You can uphold the system of the church, you can give, you can sit in the pew, uh, you can be a part of the church in that way, but the table serving in the church, no, I'm not allowed. I can remember the very first time I walked into a church and it was during Pride Month and they had a rainbow flag over the communion table and my jaw hit the flat floor and I went, what is that? I can't believe they'd done that. And the pastor got up with uh, a drag queen and a trans uh, male and presided over the communion table and said, all are welcome at this table. No one is turned away. And I remember feeling the overwhelming feeling of not just loved and accepted but celebrated by the community that I was a part of. When I think about this story this morning of rising up and bringing about change and making change, change has been needed in the church for many years in the area of LGBTQ work, but also change has been needed in our world and needs to continue to evolve in our world. Thinking about uh, celebrating Pride Month, the reason that Pride Month is celebrated, and some of us may or may not know this, is that, that Stonewall happened in June of 1969, which was the month when the LGBT community basically stood up and said, across the country, broadly, we are tired of being criminalized for loving someone of the same gender, being criminalized for acts that would not be criminalized to our counterparts in the heterosexual community. But what is most interesting to me about the story of Stonewall is that if you really go far enough back, you find out that Stonewall was not the first rebellion of the LGBT community saying, treat us fairly, treat us equally, stop criminalizing us. But it goes back to the New Year's Eve ball in 1965 and the, again in San Francisco at the Compton Cafeteria in 1966 and in 1967 the police raids at the Black Cat Bar. It goes much further back. But it was just at Stonewall that people rose up and said, 
all of these people have been speaking up and acting up and it's not doing anything and so maybe we need to have a broader reach and the outrage spread across the country. But the fight continued. The fight continued and it was in 1987 after 100,000 people had died from AIDS and HIV that there was an AIDS walk or I should say quilt laying and do we have pictures of that? Quilts were laid in memory of all of, or many of the people in the LGBT community who had died from HIV and AIDS. All over the National Mall as a statement of saying, see us, do something to fight this virus because our political leaders were saying, well, they are reaping the consequences for their sinful actions. And the imagery, do we have the other image as well, of this long mall being filled, not with just people, but with quilts that said, see us, know us, don't let us die. We are not a threat to your power or your empire. We are here to better it. I am reminded, yes, this morning of Shipra and Pua and their desire to have civil disobedience to say, you are not treating the people here fairly. You cannot let these children die. We are not a threat to your power. We can live together in peace. I'm reminded of them and I'm reminded this Pride Month of the cries of the LGBT community and the black community and the immigrant community and those who are differently abled who are saying, do not overlook us. Do not forget us. Do not treat us differently. Do not cast us aside. Do not let us die. But see us and let us live in peace. And these acts of civil disobedience change the trajectory. Change the trajectory for the LGBT community because of statements like this. But before a statement like this was made, there were many lives of Shipras and Puas that stood up that were faithful in the small things that they could be, that made their voices and their hearts and their people known, that shifted and changed a generation. So who are the faces of my faith? People like Shipra and Pua. People like the leaders of the LGBTQ movement. Folks in the black community who chose to not just be silent or to be complicit in the system, but chose to resist, to speak out, to display civil disobedience so that this world could be a greater glimpse of the kingdom of God, so that all people could come to this table, could partake, feel loved and seen, beloved by God, never dismissed.